0: chapter 3. We've been going through this book together as a church, seeing what God had to say through the Apostle Paul to a church that he had established uh, there, and and yet it is equally a a letter from God to us, to every church, and and we're being blessed by it. We're we're in chapter 3, and in verses 7 through 11 is where we've been the last two weeks, and We'll finish that up today, but it is really uh, seven through sixteen is kind of a flow of thought. I I put it down as your sermon insert if you have one of those from the last two weeks. Uh, is the the gospel is transformational? the The gospel changes the way that you view life. Any of you experienced that? I mean, I was like when you you used to have, you know, a real focus on something. and like Maybe for guys it was sports. I used to love to watch a lot of sports. It didn't matter what sport it was. I just liked to watch a lot of sports. And I hardly watch any sports now. Um, part of that maybe is I'm just older. Part of that is I have a different view uh, towards it now than I used to. And particularly my thinking about whiny athletes who make a lot of money. It's more to do with that than anything else. But I totally see it differently. Um, I totally view how I drive differently than I did before. I was like probably most people. Get on the road, go as fast as you can, and get out of my way. And if I cut you out off, that's your tough luck. Get out of my way. I don't I don't have that view anymore the the gospel transformed my thinking about that the others are more important than me and you know obeying government and the speed limit that that's important that honors god and uh you know how I drive can have an impact on what other people think about me and if they know that I'm a Christian or they particularly if they know I'm a pastor whew, that that makes a difference. So I view it differently. And it may be that way with you in a number of things. You could just go through a long list of, you know, how your views have changed towards things. And that's what Paul is really addressing from his own personal perspective. In, in the first uh, section in verses one through six, he's kind of laid out that the danger that false teachers are to the church Particularly, uh, false religious teachers who were coming along, saying, "Hey, you you, you not only got to believe, you got to keep all this list of rules. You got to have essentially, you've got to be a Jew in order to be right with God." And Paul addresses that, and he says, "You know, if that were true, then I would be at the top of the list of of you know people who would be right with God because I had all the right uh, things on my spiritual resume." You know, I had the rituals and the the ranking and the right people that I was from and you know, I was zealous for the Lord and I was even willing to persecute those people that I thought were, you know, dishonoring God, those Christians, and according to the law, you know, I was I was the best. I was at the top. He said, But you know, the truth is that isn't how you get a right relationship with God. It doesn't come through being religious. It doesn't come in uh, through you know being better than other people how so many people think well as long as i'm better than all those people god certainly he grazed on the curve right so as long as i'm better you know i'll be in the right percentile and but no 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 he says so let's read our verses 7 through 11 and again where he takes it in his thoughts about how the gospel has transformed the way that he thinks About what he had before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and how he thinks now. So verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish the resurrection of the dead. So really, in these verses, 7 through 11, Paul is saying, you know, the gospel has totally transformed the way I think. Knowing Christ has changed the, the way that I view life. And he uses this metaphor, an analogy of a profit and loss system. It's an accounting metaphor. And he, he's saying, you know, I used to think that all these things were a gain. All the you know, being circumcised the eighth day and from the people of Israel and from the, you know, tribe of Benjamin and a Hebrew of Hebrews and zealous for the Lord and keeping the lives of the strict sect of the Pharisees. You know, I had all these things. I used to see that as gain in the sense of it would make me right with God. And he says, I no longer view it that way. I, I see it as a loss. I no longer see it as an asset, but as a A liability. And in fact, he he implies that it's more than that. It's a detriment. It's not just a zero. It's a minus if you trust in those things. It's not a gain at all. It is a loss. And so he talks about profit and loss. Whatever I I thought was gain, I I have counted as loss. And then he continues on and he says, you know, I, I, I continue to count as loss. It wasn't a momentary thing that happened to him. His entire way of thinking about life changed from the moment he met Christ and that continued He continues to count all those things as loss in light of the surpassing worth of the the knowledge of Christ. And and so he he continues, in a sense, with that gain-loss idea. He says that the greatest gain is actually the knowledge of Christ. That's the gain knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You can't have better gain than that. And then we, we saw that he, he talked about confidence in the flesh belongs in the trash. right? Uh, I, I not only count them as loss, I've suffered the loss of all these things. I'm glad that I've suffered the loss of them because I've gained Christ. But you know where they belong? They belong in the trash any any view that says if I am religious enough good enough do the right things go to the right church give enough money you know drive the right way you could put that in there too or uh, you know I'm in the right organization in the right civic group you uh, On and on the list goes. I go to the the jails and I visit people. I do Bible studies with it. I give some money to homeless people. I I give some time to this, to the food bank, etc., etc. He says, if that's what you're trusting in, that's a detriment. Because it not only doesn't provide a right relationship with God, it moves you away from God. Because... You're trusting in what you do, not in him. So the more you trust in yourself, you're moving further away from God. And he says, so take that stuff and throw it in the trash. And he, he used the term, I, I gave it to you, the skubula, right? The Greek term skubula that's translated in the ESV and some other translations as rubbish. The King James and New King James and maybe another translation has the, the, the term dung. It is a kind of a severe term. It, it was used of human and animal waste and uh, it was used of t- food on a table that had spoiled and was stinking. And it was like, you know, trusting in human merit is like picking out a carton of milk that's been sitting in your fridge for three months and, and unscrewing it and giving it a whiff and it's like everyone's head's coming back. And, and then you can't get that smell out of your nose for like an hour. And then you realize, it's permeated the entire fridge. i got to throw everything out of my fridge. It's just, it's scubula. It's rubbish. It was It was a word that was used of a decaying body. I don't know if you've ever been around a decaying body, but the odor is crazy. I mean, maybe you've been around decaying salmon. Pretty stinky. And you touch it, you can't get that smell off your hand. I mean... You wash yourself with lye and that stink, it's still there. At least it's on the, the nose hairs. The decaying body of a human is even worse. Said, That's what trusting in human religious achievement is. It stinks before God, and it should stink before us. We should not trust in it. It belongs in the trash. It's scuba. And then he informed us about the goal of turning from that way of thinking, from human merit, from confidence in the flesh to Christ. And he puts it in two simple phrases: that I might gain Christ, and that I might be found in Christ. And and to gain Christ, you know, again he's using that accounting language as a I gained Christ. I got the big plus in my account now. When I when I met him on the Damascus road it all changed for me. All that stuff was a liability and he became my asset. I gained Christ. And and yet he's not just talking about what happened on the Damascus road. There's a present sense to what he's saying and a future sense to what he's saying. It's kind of like, I gained Christ at that moment, but I continue to gain Christ day in and day out because it's a growing relationship that I have with Jesus. The knowledge of Christ is not just a head knowledge, it's an experiential knowledge where we get to know Christ more and more each day. It's such a gain. The assets just keep on piling up, if you will, in that metaphor. And, and, and the ultimate gain, won't that be when we get to be with Jesus in heaven? So, that I may gain Christ. And then to be found in him, well that's, that's I think, just another way of saying the same thing. To be found in Christ. That's what it means to be a believer, isn't it? To be in Christ. What does that mean? Well, I'm united with him. I'm united with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. I'm united with him in newness of life. I'm united with him by the Holy Spirit coming and living inside of me. Sealing me, sealing me until the day of redemption. I'm united with Christ. I'm all in in Him, and He's all in in me to be found in Him. And that happened, you know, when He trust, uh, met Christ on the road as well. So it, it's another way of saying the same thing, just a little bit different language. But it's the it's the same idea. I was found in Christ at that moment, but I. I continue to be found in Him more and more. I find in Him all the treasures of wisdom and, and understanding are in Him. The treasure chest. I just keep going to it and I pull out. Oh, that's another one. Oh, that's another one. Or I get out my spade and I dig a little in the scriptures. Like, oh, look at that jewel, Ben. That's fantastic to be found in Him, and ultimately to be found in Him in heaven. You know, is the greatest greatest gain. Well, that was all review, right? So we're, we're coming to the end of these verses. And the last one, if you do have your sermon insert, and I know some of you are, are, are guests, you probably don't have that. And I don't know that there are any left around. But the, number five on your sermon insert from the last two weeks, the ultimate end is knowing Christ fully. The ultimate end is knowing Christ fully. So Paul's already referred to the in- incomparable value of knowing Christ Jesus in an intimate and personal way. That was verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So he's already talked about knowing Christ. But he now enlarges on that idea, stating that the ultimate gain, the ultimate gain is to know Christ fully, to be all in in him. And that, that's more deeply explained. If you don't see this in the text, let me explain it to you. That knowing Christ is more fully explained by the two participial phrases that follow it. So let's look at that again. That Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings or the fellowship of his sufferings. Those two phrases, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings help us to understand what he means that I may know him. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's, one author writes that, that, that he had he had found in Christ uh, an inexhaustible fullness. But there was always more of him to know. I want to know Christ fully. You know, Knowing Christ is, is much more than simply knowing about him. And Paul's not referring to the acquiring of information that Jesus was the Messiah. Or being able to, to say... You know, Christ fulfilled 300 prophecies from the Old Testament, or, you know, that on the day of his death there were 33 prophecies that were fulfilled. And, you know, to have all that information is good and helpful and wonderful and maybe helps convince us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, but that's not what he's talking about here. I want to know him fully, not know facts, but I want to know him more fully. And Paul had come to know him, you know, on the Damascus Road. So when Paul writes that I may know him, he had already come to know the Lord many years before. You know, like around shortly after Jesus uh, ascended into heaven within a couple of years. And now this is like 30 years later when he's writing that I may know him. What? I, I think he already knew him. Well, yes, he did but he wanted to know him more fully. And not only represents that, what it takes to be right with God, you know, not religious things, not good deeds, but knowing Christ, it represents that, but it's, it's beyond that. Knowing him fully. One author writes so beautifully, Paul's goal of knowing Christ had not waned over the years in fact, the reverse was true. It had burned more brightly as he learned more and more of his, of his Lord. You know, and I, I thought about that, what Paul's communicating there, and I thought, is that, is that true of us? You know, it it seems like when people come to know the Lord, they realize, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. It doesn't matter how religious I've been. I've gone to church my whole life, but that's not going to get me right with God. So, I'm going to trust in Jesus. ask for forgiveness and and oh, man, I'm forgiven. There's nothing better than that. And and that's so exciting and walking with Jesus each day, man, that is that is the best ever, right? And that how most people think when they come to know Christ, they ought to, because they've been brought out of death and into life. I mean, they've been brought out of the family of the devil and made a, 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 a child of God. They do. They think that way. But some people, it just seems like that just begins to dissipate over time. That. Excitement, that that joy of knowing Christ It's like, uh, yeah, I'm really glad that that you know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I'm I'm really glad about that. But you know, there's a lot of things that I want to experience in life, and well, who doesn't want to experience lots of things? Of course we do. But what ought to be at the head of that is experiencing Christ. And that experiencing Him makes experiencing all those other things mean what they should mean, be what they should be, because knowing Him completely changes how I view those things. The gospel is transformational. It does change those things. Certain things that I used to think were really important to, to, to do and I find that it's not really that important there are more important things and so he's saying listen I want to I want to keep knowing my lord better and better and better and better and and, and what that means he says is knowing the power of his resurrection and the Sharing in his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings is a better translation as some translations haven't. Those two phrases serve as an explanation of what he says that I may know him. Now I think some people not like that. They would just like it to be kind of esoteric or, you know, just kind of. Out there. Oh yeah, I want to know him more fully. You want to know him more fully? This is what it means. Knowing the power of his resurrection and 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 sharing in his sufferings. Well, oh, I like that first one, not so much the second one. And yet that is one of the themes that runs throughout this letter sharing in his sufferings. We've seen it over and over again and we see it again here. In fact, this this uh, sentence would be better translated this way, that I may know him, even the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. It's not three things that I may know him. One, two, the power of his resurrection. Three, the fellowship of his sufferings. It's that I may know him. That means, one, experiencing the power of his resurrection. Two, sharing in his sufferings. So for Paul, and thus for every person who has come to know Christ, knowing him involves those two things. Paul knew, do we, that there, that there is no power in keeping the law and being religious. And being, you know, having the right spiritual resume. There's no power in that to overcome sin or to faithfully serve God. There's no power there. And you're not going to serve God without power. That power doesn't come from within you. That's what law keeping is. That's what legalism is. It's you doing it. It doesn't come from you. It comes from God. And so, you know, he wanted this growing experiential knowledge of the spiritual power which had raised Jesus from the dead. Now, he He wrote about this power in a prayer for another church, the Ephesian church, in, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, in verses 18 through 20. I mean, he begins his prayer, I, I pray that the eyes are heart may be open you'll understand certain things and one of the things he wants them to understand deals with this resurrection power he says having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints it's all talking about the future day isn't it the hope the the riches of our inheritance where jane is now enjoying them and Steve is now enjoying them. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? That's now. The immeasurable greatness of his power to us who have believed in, in Christ. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So let's consider that for a moment. I mean, Mm -hmm. the same power, that's what he's saying, the same amount of, type of, quality of power that was demonstrated when God raised his son from the dead is the very power that he puts in us. Do you know that power? What's that look like? I mean, I don't think it's saying that when we die we'll be raised from the dead. He's talking about right now we know the power of the resurrection. That same power, what does that look like? Well, I mean, it it can look Don't have different looks. I mean, let's take, you know, the selfish man who gets married. I mean, life is all about him. Life is all about him. And, you know, the wife is, you know, accompaniment. It's a suitcase that he carries around with him. But life is all about him. And she better make it all about him. And then he. You see, the gospel, <laughs> and the, the power of God comes into his life, and he is totally viewing life differently. It's like he starts to struggle. It's like, but, but I'm, I'm struggling with myself. Don't worry. There's power to change it. The power of the resurrection will change the way that you view your life, the, the way that you will view your wife, the way that you will view your kids if you have kids. It just totally Transforms the way that's resurrection power that does that resurrection power about you know totally change the way that you you experience trials, you know yeah, life is filled with trouble and toil it's difficult, and sometimes that that difficulty is. Spiritual. sometimes it's relational, sometimes it's physical. I myself have experienced that end of that, you know, a lot as, as some of the rest of you have. And, you know, if it wasn't for the resurrection power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead being alive me, I would be just as much of a whiner as most people are. And I find that most people are whiners. They whine, they complain, they grumble, they gungudzo. Right? It's not right, you know. If God, if you really loved me, you you wouldn't you wouldn't give me this. Of course, if they would just no, God gives it to us so that He could show His love for us, to make us more dependent on Him. That's resurrection power. I mean, I. There's no other explanation for someone that would think like, God, thank you for this. Thank you for the suffering that you've brought into my life. Thank you for it because it makes me depend on you more. It's like, no, no, you don't think that way unless the power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. And the power that changes you from a person that's just totally self-centered to the one who's just My life is all about others. Others, Lord, yes, others. (laughs) Let this my motto be. Let me live for others like I might live like thee. You don't think that way unless the power that raised Jesus from the dead comes into your life. You don't have the ability within yourself to to flip the switch and think differently. But the power to, to change is absolutely in you if the Spirit of God is living in you. That resurrection power is in you. And you could just go on and on discussing that. But, you know, Paul wanted to experientially know the power which, the way I wrote this, the power that saved him from himself and transformed him from being unholy to being sanctified, from being impure to pure. And he was so impure as one who was persecuting the church from being unrighteous to righteous, and continually propelling him towards a life of service to others, inaugurating and sustaining this newness of life, is how we put it in Romans 6 4. And living in a way that honors and glorifies God. You know, I've heard so many people say, well, I know that my life is to honor God, but I just can't do it. I know I should be this. I I just can't do it. Well, you can if the power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead works in every child of God. So we don't really, we can't use that excuse, can we? I I can't do it. Yes, you can. I, I can't stop the way I drive. Someone needs to take away your license or just change the way that you drive. I can't stop the way that I talk to people when they attack me. You know, it's just in me. I've got to attack back. No, you don't. You can be like Jesus. Because the power that raised him from the dead is in you. So, the second phrase of it, the one that we might want to not include, but we must, because it's right there for us, and may share in his sufferings, or literally know the fellowship of his sufferings, that is taken with the previous one. And it suggests that the power of the resurrected Christ and that the fellowship of his sufferings are not to be thought of as two totally separate things, experiences, but as alternate sides of the same thing. They are, you know, lack of a better phrase two sides of a single coin heads and tails you know and you'd probably think of it as tails sharing in his suffering but the question I think that needs to be asked when you consider this is what does this expression refer to I mean in what sense can Paul or any believer or a church because he's writing to a church share in the sufferings of Christ right Paul would write in Colossians 1.24, uh, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So he's suffering on behalf of the church in Colossae. Uh, by the way, a church he didn't personally start, and he had never visited. But he was just as concerned for them as he was the other churches that he had started and visited. He says, I, do my, uh, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am fill, meaning in my body, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now in what sense was Paul filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ? In what sense was Christ's afflictions lacking? Well, he certainly doesn't mean that he didn't suffer enough to purchase our salvation. He himself said on the cross, it is finished. His affliction was enough. He bore our sins in his body as I hung on the tree, right? So he's not saying that Christ didn't suffer enough and we've got to suffer in life in order to earn a right relationship with God. He's not saying that. What he is saying is, you know, Jesus is up in heaven now. He ascended up into heaven. So the the attacks, the tribulations, the trials, the hardships that are coming towards the church, towards us as believers, if Christ were here, they would still be going to him. But we're his representatives, so it comes to us. That's what he's saying. That's the sufferings of Christ. And and the word that Paul uses here uh, for sufferings uh, pathema, uh, it, it, does, it designates affliction which, uh, you know, in which all Christians participate as being part of his body. Listen to Romans 8.18. It'll probably be up on the screen for you there, yes. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not, worthy, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us all the sufferings of this present time. Suffering for Christ, it's not worth being compared. Don't even put it on the scale, because the, the scale's going to bottom out on the side of Christ. The sufferings aren't comparable to what Christ went through for us, and nor should we try to compare them and think that somehow we're earning something. No, it's not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us because of what Christ has done. 2 Corinthians 1, 5 through 5-7 says, for as, we share, uh, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, there it is again, as believers we share in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, So what do we suffer for? Well, we suffer for Christ, and we suffer for each other. And also we share comfort with each other. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. A whole lot of sharing going on there, isn't there? In suffering and in comfort. And just as we share in the sufferings of Christ, oh yes, brother and sister in Christ, we share in the comfort that comes from knowing him. So all Christians participate in these sufferings and and through them, actually, we're told that we enter the kingdom of God. Listen to Acts 14, 22, or you'll see it. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. So Paul is on a trip at the end of his missionary journey. He's going back and he's he's encouraging the, the believers in churches that he had started. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many... Tribulations, you could put the word suffering there, or affliction, hardship. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not a lot of people think that way anymore. They think, well, I come to know Christ and tribulation ends. <laughs> it's like, oh boy, do they have an eye awakening when they realize that isn't the way it is. As long as we're honoring Christ, we're going to face that all the way into the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 3 says that no one may be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. What? What? It's kind of like that shingles vaccine. Did you know that you can keep shingles away with a vaccine? What? Did you know that you were destined for suffering? Yes. As a child of God, we're destined for it. Paul had earlier said in Philippians that it's been granted to us not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. It's been granted, given, ordained, appointed, destined for us as his children. Suffering with Christ is a necessary prerequisite to being glorified with Christ. I don't like that. Well, then take it up with God. Because he says in Romans eight seventeen, if we're children and then heirs, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now we don't suffer so that we get glorified. We suffer because we know Christ. And because we know Christ, we will be glorified. It's just that suffering is part of that. But aren't you glad that we have verses like Romans 8:38 through 39 that inform us that our suffering, our affliction, our hardship and toil can never separate us from the love of God? I mean, I am sure Paul says that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation including myself, by the way, because I am created, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So all the sufferings that believers experience in this life, that's why they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. Because what God is using the suffering for in our lives is so good. Now, there are many disciples of Christ. You may be one of them. I would include myself in this. Who would say that the deepest moments of spiritual fellowship, you know, knowing of Christ, is at times of intense suffering? That's when they feel they are closest to Jesus. That's when they feel his loving arms the most. That's when they sense that they're under the wings of God and his protection. That's when they know that he draws alongside them, and as they grieve, he grieves. As they suffer, he suffers. They get that sense. And it doesn't matter whether it's physical or emotional or relational or spiritual. Suffering tends to drive us to Christ in faith, doesn't it? It should. Not drive us away from, but drive us to Christ. So, think of this for a moment. Believers who do all that they can to avoid suffering, hardship, tribulation, trial, are in a sense seeking to avoid Christ. Let me say that again. If we know Christ, and we seek to avoid suffering, and now I'm not saying run stupidly into it, Right? I'm saying, if we seek to do all that we can to avoid it, it's like, I can get around that. If we're trying to avoid suffering, then we are, in a sense, avoiding Christ, because it is our suffering that draws us closer to Christ. It's in the midst of suffering that believers can fully appreciate that they have a high priest who can understand and feels their pain and will come to their aid. Well, in the next few phrases, he continues to expand on that same idea. It's like, didn't we get enough of this suffering? No? Not yet. He says, uh, becoming like him in his death. So what does he mean? You know, it's like fellowship of his sufferings. He means becoming like him in his death. Did you get that? Becoming like him in his death and, and the the, the word becoming like, it's, it's actually a translation of a Greek term. You don't need to remember it, it's sumorphizo. Uh, it's found only here in the New Testament. Paul liked to make up words that would fit to what he's trying to communicate. And this is one of them. And this expression means that as believers share in, in Christ's sufferings, they're strengthened through the power of his resurrection, and they are continually being conformed to Christ's death. The, and by the way, the passive voice, this is becoming like, it's, it's passive, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's being done to me. It's not active. I'm not doing it. I'm not conforming myself. I am being conformed by God into the likeness of my Savior, and particularly in His death. So it's not the effort of believers that conforms them to Christ in any way. It's God's great power, that resurrection power, working in them that makes them look more like Jesus. This verb sumer, feed, so it's actually, a, 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 again, it's a word probably coined by Paul. I don't think there's any other use of it in the Bible or elsewhere. It's one of a series, actually, of compound verbs or words that, that all begin with this little Greek prefix, sun, if you're in English, soon. Um, like the word sym- sym- symphony or even sympathy begins with that little prefix it is together soon is being together so he uses all kinds of compounds word to describe the momentous truth that that all believers have been incorporated into Christ and are joined with him so that they they share in the events of his death and his burial, resurrection, and ascension, and even glory. So, let me just read this for you. Therefore, Paul speaks of being crucified with Christ in Romans 6 6, of being buried with him in Romans 6 4 and Colossians 2.12. of having been raised or made alive with him, together with him. Romans 6 8, Ephesians 2 5, and 6, Colossians 2.12 and thirteen and chapter three and verse one of Colossians. And may do sit with him in Ephesians two six. That would be in, in glory. As well as suffering with him in Romans eight seventeen and being glorified with him, Romans eight seventeen, Ephesians three, 6, 2 Timothy two, twelve, and first Corinthians four eight. Those are all words, these compound words. It's like it's all with him. It's with him. It's with Christ. You see how knowing Christ changes the way that I view everything? You know, as far, as far as daily experience was concerned, Paul would say, I die daily, 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-one, And he spoke of carrying around in his body the death or dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in his body. My suffering for Jesus reveals the life of Jesus in me to others. Hmm. Jesus himself taught that the disciples that dying to self was an intricate part of being his disciple. Right? Take up your cross daily. Die daily and follow me. uh, Accordingly, the Christian is exhorted to put to death the deeds of the body in Romans 8.13. And all the controlled and moved us in our life before Christ, whether it was evil or it was self righteousness, we we're to put it aside. We we're to put it off like dirty clothes. Colossians 3 5. So far as anticipation of bodily death through martyrdom, Paul's already said in chapter 1, verse 21, that's like, you know, I don't think I'm going to die now, but if I do, that's you know, a gain to me. Yeah, he will face, a, you know, martyrdom. Later, you know, so suffering for Christ, it's part of it. It's being like him in his death. the phrase, by any means possible, in verse 11, you know, again, read verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It's by it's been understood by some and, and I understand why you could see it this way, but it's been understood by some as expressing some doubt on Paul Paul's part, like would he be able to participate in the resurrection? Will will he get there? But if that were true, if that's what he was trying to communicate, then how about us? <laughs> how much doubt must we have if the apostle Paul would have doubt about that, right? But he's not expressing doubt. He's actually expressing his humility. You see, Paul never got over the sense that he'd been such a persecutor of the church. How could it be that he would be brought into Christ, to gain Christ, to be found in him, to know him, to to know the power of his resurrection and fellowship. He just couldn't get over the fact that God had done for him those things. That's what I meant by the song, and can it be. And can it be. How can it be that you and I, knowing how evil we were, how much of an enemy we were to God before he saved us. And we didn't clean up our life. He cleaned us up, right? Right. Knowing that, knowing that, like Paul would express, I am the chief of sinners, knowing that I was that, how can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me that I might gain that? So he is expressing in humility, wow, I can hardly believe, but I do believe that I get a Partake in the resurrection from the dead. And that, that phrase resurrection from the dead itself is unique in the in the New Testament. I mean the Bible does, New Testament does speak about resurrection elsewhere. But this would literally read this way: the out-resurrection from the dead. The out-resurrection from the dead. Because the word for resurrection, it's normally, you you might be familiar with this Greek term, anastasis. Uh People have been named after that word, Anastasia, Disney movies. It comes from that word, Anastasis. That's the normal Greek word for resurrection. But the word that he uses here, it's the same word, but it has a little EX at the front of it, which means out of. So it's the out resurrection from the dead. So... What he's stressing is that believers will be taken out of the rest of the dead. Whether you believe in the rapture, I do, will be taken out of the rest of the dead and be raised up to be with Christ. But if you don't believe in the rapture, it's still the same truth, that the rest of the dead will not be judged until the end of the millennial kingdom and they'll be brought before the great white throne judgment and judged for their sin and thrown in the lake of fire but believers no we've got the out resurrection from the dead we don't have a resurrection to the second death we have a resurrection to eternal life so the certainty that all believers will attain the resurrection of the dead well that is the great hope that is laid out before us it's and it's a strong motivation, I think, for the children of God to seek to know Christ more fully. You know, not not in some day, but in the present, seeking to live in his power and not shying away from his suffering because they are confident of their final destination. In fact, that's what it says. Attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, this word translated attain may sound like it implies that it's something that the believer, you know, gets, grasps, uh, uh, obtains. It's like we go after it and we attain it, but it, it's not that at all. It, it's not that I can do it or I can make it or that I'm the little engine that could. No, this word actually refers to arriving at a desired destination or goal and it does not imply that we come to something but that something comes to us <laughs> something comes to us like an inheritance that comes to an heir what is our inheritance well part of it is the out resurrection of the dead are you in that are you in that group i hope you are i hope every one of us is it's a great hope So, concluding questions that maybe we might want to ask ourselves after considering these four verses. Number one, kind of an extended question, but here it is. Are you absolutely certain that you will attain the resurrection of the dead? So, I mean, this is the question of where you're going to spend forever, right? Will it be with the Lord in the glory of his presence? Or will it be in the lake of fire, separated from the glory of his presence forever? That is what hell is. What the lake of fire is. It's full of torment. What is the greatest torment of the lake of fire? Of hell. Well, it's where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched, and it's like being eaten by worms, you know, through eternity. It's all those. Those are all words that describe it, that the torment is caused by knowing I could have been with God. I could have been in the presence of His glory if I would have believed the gospel. Right? Now, I know I'm gonna, I believe the gospel not because I wised up enough, but He drew me. Right? I get that. God's sovereign in salvation, but the unbeliever is going to forever recognize oh, I want to be there like the rich man who woke up in, with his in, in hell, in torment? So important question. Number two, it, it, is your main goal in life to know Christ as fully as possible? You know, experiencing the power of his resurrection and, and, and sharing in the suffering of the Lord as, as a result of living for him? Or are you kind of putting that off until, you know, you'll get, it, you'll get there someday, but you want to live your life before that? Don't, don't think that way. Because the fullest life now is fully knowing Christ. Now. Okay. Third, would you be willing to evaluate your life and see how much scuba you got hanging out in your life? You know, how much rubbish, how much trash, how much dung, if you want to put it that way. Would you be willing... To take that scuba, whatever it is, and put it where it belongs, in the trash. Only then can we be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Only then will we be fully knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and be in a position where we can honor him. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing a song in response to what God has shared with us. Jesus, thank you. So let me pray. Lord, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him in this world so that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And, and while we've kind of dived deep into this section of scripture, it, it doing so helps us to understand our Savior all the better and what he wants from us. And what he's done for us. So we are thankful. Thankful for the gospel, which has changed the way that we think about life. I pray that everyone here would know Christ. And if they don't, if they're here today, they don't know Christ. Maybe they realize just by hearing from you this morning that they can immediately. Right where they sit, they can just cry out. I need that Savior. I need forgiveness. I want not religion, but I want that relationship with Jesus Christ. Pray that that will bring you glory. That we will bring you glory. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. So why don't you stand, we'll sing, and then we'll be dismissed and go over to the other side. If you're a guest today, please join us on the other side of the building. We have lunch every Sunday. Great time of fellowship and Rejoice in, in our God. But Jesus, thank you.